terrible double tragedy, Ida Bennett's story, Mormons in Trouble, and more crime news for the 6th of April, 1886 from the Memphis Appeal on this edition of A Year of Crime is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Mrs. Maria P. Evans arrested for forgery, New Orleans, Louisiana, April the 4th. Mrs. Maria P. Evans, who figured conspicuously before the courts as legatee of the late Myra Clark Gaines under an alleged will of Mrs. Gaines, was arrested last night, charged with uttering a forged will, and lodged in jail in default of $20,000 bail. Murdered for dunning a man for grocery bill, Indianapolis, Indiana, April the 5th. At Lafayette today, George Wilson, a drayman, struck Thomas Lonigan, a well-known grocer, over the head with a drapen, breaking his jaw and knocking all his teeth down his throat. Lonigan's injuries are probably fatal. Wilson owed Lonigan a grocery bill, and Lonigan dunned him, which was the cause of the crime. Terrible double tragedy. Unaccountable murder and suicide at Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, April the 5th. In a two-story brick house at the corner of Vallette and Sixth Streets was enacted an early hour this morning, the most unaccountable murder and suicide that probably ever occurred in this city. Annie Rosenstein, a beautiful girl of 16, while sleeping by the side of her little sisters, was shot and instantly killed by Isidore Seedenbaum, an 18-year-old friend of the family who was enjoying their hospitality. The, cup, the family occupies the lower floor of the house. About 1.30 o'clock, Morris Rosenstein and his wife were awakened by the report of a revolver, followed quickly by a second shot. Mr. Rosenstein jumped from his bed and went into the kitchen for a light. Then he noticed that the door of the children's room was open. On entering, his eyes met a horrible spectacle. With the dead body of their sister beside them, the four other children in the bed sat up and rubbed their eyes, ignorant of the terrible deed. Schneiderbaum was in his nightclothes and lay in a fallen position partially over the body of the murdered girl. Both were dead. Blood flowed from a wound in the side of the girl's head above the left ear and from a hole in the breast of the young man. Messengers were sent to the police station and Seidenbaum's body was taken to the morgue. None of the relatives of the deceased could advance any theory as to the cause of the double tragedy. Fatal Affray, Louisville, Kentucky, April the 5th. Paul Augustine, a colored deckhand of Cincinnati, and Paul Stanley, a gypsy passenger from Vicksburg, Mississippi, quarreled on the boat Thomas Sherlock near Cloverport, Kentucky, Sunday night, and after receiving ser several serious stabs, Stanley shot and killed Augustine. Stanley then leaped into the river, swam ashore, and escaped, leaving his wife and children on the boat. Ida Bennett's story, New Light on the Causey Street Tragedy, the woman insists to the last upon her innocence, Zoe, Zoe's woeful tale. On Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, after receiving spiritual ministrations at the hands of a neighboring clergyman, Ida Bennett, the only surviving victim of the Hernando Street tragedy, quietly breathed her last. Weeping women surrounded her bedside, gentle hands closed her eyelids, and her dearest friend sat vigil by the corpse of her of her whose bedside she had never left since the hour when the fatal shot was fired. The dying woman seems to have met death calmly and resignedly, and her better nature asserted itself in her last hours, and it was at her own request that a minister was sent for. A few hours before her death, she called to her bedside her intimate friend and relation, Zoe 
Carlos and besought her to solemnly pledge herself to lead a better life. The promise was given, and a smile of happiness flitted over the dying woman's countenance as she closed her eyes and silently waited the grim messenger. With the certainty of death staring her in the face, she was pressed to make a statement of how the tragedy occurred and not go to her grave with her lips sealed. She did so reluctantly, and only on the assurance that no publication of her version of the affair would be made. The secret leaked out, however, and an appeal reporter succeeded last night in hearing the dying woman's own version of the occurrence as told in the very presence of death. She said, Ida Bennett's statement, quote, Sunday night I went to Oakley's Beer Saloon on Beale Street to get a pitcher of beer. Two well-known society men of this city were in the bar room, and they insulted me and followed me out. Goaded by their repeated insults, I threw the pitcher at them when one of them jumped at me and beat me unmercifully. I got away from them and ran home and told Al what happened occurred. He snatched his pistol and started for the saloon. Soon he returned and began to abuse me, charging me with having been untrue to him, having heard so from the man who assaulted me. He grew more and more angry and finally began beating me. We quarreled all that night, and Monday night when he came home, he seemed to have heard fresh tales about me, and the quarrel was renewed. Tuesday night, he did not sleep at home, but Wednesday morning he came home and said he had clear proof that I had betrayed him and pressed me to admit that it was so. I finally confessed that I had gone out to meet men. Then he became violent and beat me and ran me into the yard. Then he called me, and I refused to come, being afraid of him. At last, I did go into the house again and went to my trunk to pack it. As I knelt before it, I saw him take the pistol from his overcoat pocket, where it had remained since Sunday night, and advanced toward me in a threatening manner. I sprung up and grabbed the pistol. We had a struggle, but his strength was greater than mine, and he turned the pistol toward me and fired while I still held it. I fell, and he rushed out into the next room, and I heard another shot. I could not see from where I lay. I could not see him from where I lay, and rail, rolled over to the side of the room near the door and looked, raising myself on my elbow at him. After that, I remember nothing. Unquote. Corroborating circumstances. There are some corroborating circumstances that give color to the above version. It will be remembered that the woman was found in a pool of blood on a, on a line with the door. At the distance of eight feet laterally from where she lay was a thin pool of fresh blood about six inches in diameter. This must have been the spot where, according to her version, she first fell, and from where she crawled to the spot where she was found. The powder burns on her hands also corroborate the theory of a struggle, but here all probability that her version of the story is correct ends. The fact that no powder burns were found on Bennett's clothing in the position where the pistol was found are circumstances irreconcilable with the theory of the dead woman's innocence. It is doubtful whether the mystery that surrounds the case is ever satisfactorily cleared away. One of the incidents connected with this strange affair that will long linger in the memory of those who witnessed it, about three o'clock yesterday afternoon, Zoe Carlos, the dead woman's bosom friend, called at Holst and requested to be permitted to take one last look at the body. The request was granted, and she was conducted to the basement of the establishment where the body lay embalmed and ready for interment. The cloth that covered the body was removed down to the neck, and the head of Ida Bennett, white as marble and rigid as stone, met her friend's gaze. For one moment she gazed upon it in silence, and then, with a sob and flood of tears, she stooped and kissed the pale lips and icy brow and wept as though her heart would break. Again and again, 
was she urged to desist that there might be poison in every kiss, but she paid no heed to such warnings, and when an effort was to hide the sight, she begged and implored for one minute more, one minute more. It was a scene to touch a heart of stone, and although those who surrounded her were inured by custom to witnessing the wildest exhibitions of grief, they were not unmoved by the sight of this one woman and all the world weeping over the remains of, quote, one more unfortunate, unquote. We turn from this scene to one not quite so touching, it appears that there is to be a disgraceful fight for spoils almost over the dead woman's body. Yesterday, almost before the body had been placed in its coffin, the furniture and clothes and all the visible effects of the Bennets were levied upon. It appears that, in the presence of numerous witnesses, the dying woman made a verbal statement, disposing of such little trinkets and articles of wearing apparel as she might truthfully call her own. This expression of her dying wishes, it seems, is to be disregarded, and a general grab made by somebody for everything in sight. We trust the effort may fail. The body will probably be buried here, as a dead woman's stepfather has wired instructions to that effect. The mother is lying very ill, prostrated by the news of her daughter's fate. Mormons in Trouble, Salt Lake, Utah, April the 5th. Thomas E. Taylor, late member of the Legislative Council, son of John Taylor and business manager of the News, was arrested yesterday. There are three indictments of unlawful cohabitation against him. He was released on $1,000 bail upon each charge. Joseph E. Dean, a Lake City Councilor, was arrested yesterday with two indictments of the same sort against him. Bail was fixed at $2,000 each. And that's all the crime news for the 6th of April, 1886, from the Memphis Appeal. Please join me again for another episode of A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.